You're listening to The Ecoside Report, a monthly podcast from Stop Ecoside International and the movement for ecocide law. Stop Ecoside International is working tirelessly to get ecocide recognized by the International Criminal Court, but we need your help. If you value this content or want to support the work of Stop Ecoside International, you can become a patron over at patreon.com for just one hour's wage per month. Your support makes our work possible and we can't thank you enough. As this is our, our sort of pilot episode um, of this report, is perhaps just to give a very brief kind of overview framing. Um, so Stop Ecoside International began in 2017. It was co-founded by myself and legal pioneer Polly Higgins, sadly no longer with us, um, and is a, a growing movement globally to make mass destruction of nature a crime at the international level. Um, and the last year has seen some really major milestones, and this is now a movement that is really gathering momentum across the world at, at all levels. Um, and one of the key things is that, as of last year, there is a consensus legal definition of ecocide. There have been working definitions in the past, of course, um, but it's mostly been lawyers or groups of lawyers saying we believe this should be a crime and this is what we think it should look like, which is all very well, but obviously very personal. Um, what's different on this occasion is that our foundation convened a group of lawyers from around the world, so geographically, gender, ethnically diverse, but also diverse in terms of background, in terms of their legal backgrounds from public international law, criminal law, environmental law, climate law, and also ideologies. So ranging from the quite conventional, the International Law Commission, to the quite activist, um, you know, sort of the people's lawyer, for example, Pablo Fajardo, who worked on the Chevron case. So a real range in that drafting group. And what that meant was that the definition that emerged was a true consensus. Everybody had to sacrifice something. And what's been fascinating about that is that it has really landed well in the political sphere and in the media too. Um, and so where in 2019 there were no governments talking about the criminalisation of ecocide, we now have over 20, I think it's 23 states now that are member states of the International Criminal Court who have this discussion on public record, either at parliamentary level or at government level. And that brings us to your question, because uh, at the moment there is a regional discussion going on in the EU. And that is because the EU 2008 Crime Directive is being revised. Um, and that is a perfect opportunity to expand a scope of criminal law to protect the environment in the EU context. And so our, our organisation is um, advocating for the addition of a, a standalone article to cover ecocide as a crime so that we can actually criminalise severe and either widespread or long-term harm to the environment. And that is something that none of the EU member states currently do. Excellent. Okay, let, let's explore that because that's excellent. That, that really is, it's huge because you've managed to get from zero to 22 in about three years, a number of countries who are considering uh, ratifying this and putting it into their own legal sort of frameworks, their own jurisdictions. But if you're able to have this EU crime directive uh, appropriately uh, altered or edited so that uh, ecocide is included in it, does that mean that automatically the EU 27 will have a faster and more effective pathway to adopting an ecocide law? That's very much what we're hoping, absolutely. Um, because 
ultimately we're looking for an international crime because one of the key things about all of this, about our work, is that we feel there's a really foundational piece missing. I mean, environmental crimes that already exist are already um, something like the fourth most profitable criminal activity in the world, alongside drug, drug trafficking. So effectively, this is already a really serious issue. Um, but at the moment, environment the body of environmental law that already exists is not well enforced and often it's because it's not taken seriously enough so when we put ecocide at the level of an international crime that creates a foundation when you name the worst crimes you're effectively putting in place um a, a sort of precise but but quite profound you know uh, change in the norms if you like um and so that that's what feels most important and in terms of the eu support this would be absolutely appropriate i mean it's our you know our overconsumption our particular attitudes and and uh, of, of sort of constant growth in the economic sphere that has ultimately led to a global situation where there are countries in the world who have not contributed to what they're suffering and it would be absolutely appropriate for the eu to support those climate vulnerable ecologically vulnerable countries and to actually lead on saying you know this far and no further creating an outer boundary. That's that's excellent and it, it, it speaks to uh, not just the sort of the arc of history changing but it speaks to I think this other issue that hovers above these conversations and it has to do with jurisdiction and reach because you're absolutely right the nexus of ecocide sits firmly in supply chains that originate frequently in North America or the EU and the ways in which those supply chains can be made to observe rules that are created in the EU is a really prescient question. What kind of things or issues have you seen that have come up as you've tried to make sure that not only the, the letter of these new definitions and these laws are observed, but the spirit is observed in the way that the EU does business with the rest of the world? I think this is going to be super important and I think that one of the aspects of this that is very important in, in our narrative because it's something that we can see beginning to be perceived in the world is that having these outer boundaries in place is actually hugely constructive. I mean people often focus on the you know how is the law going to function in practice, who's going to be prosecuted, who's going to be in the dock but actually, the real power of this is when you put the right framework in place, and particularly when people can see it coming, in other words, it's not going to happen overnight, but it, you know, we can see it coming, that allows the decision makers in every sector to actually put their thinking caps on and, 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 and say, OK, it, you know, we can see this coming. What questions do we need to be asking now? in order to move in that right direction. Um, and that's something that is very powerful. It's actually a, a tool for strategic positive change. Um, and, and that's why it's so important that, that more and more people talk about uh, ecocide and, and, and the criminalization of ecocide so that this um, visibility on the horizon becomes more and more clear. And thank you for saying that. I was, I was thinking it virtually aloud in my head because within the context of understanding that punishing ecocide is a really obvious element of what should have been the Treaty of Rome so many years ago, but hopefully we're in that moment now in history where we bring this into being. There's also this additional element that changing the culture, changing the conversation we have so that we don't just generate enough of a repulsion of a culture of destruction 
and, and, and death, frankly, but we actually move into a culture of regeneration and growth, real growth, not sort of hypothetical economic growth, mm. but biospheric growth, growth in well-being, growth in the way, in, in the way that our environment exists in, and, and, and the way that we interact with it, growth that allows everything to flourish. Talk to us in a bit more detail about how setting up the culture, the content, and the process of this ecocide law leads us to this better place. I think it's really important to look at this aspect. It's about the mindset. It's about looking at how, you know, over the last decades, even centuries, you know, the dominant global paradigm, it has, be, has been very alienated. You know, it has really been a, a, a context of human beings take advantage of nature, treat nature as a bank of resources, and completely forget that we're deeply intertwined and totally dependent on the living world and on the living world being healthy. Um, and so in a way, the way we see the, the piece that, that, that Ecoside Law is, is, is almost a bridging piece. You know, it's, it's, it's acupunctural. It's, it's a, on one level, it's very simple. It's adding a crime to a list of crimes that are already there. You know, we already have genocide, war crimes, let's add ecocide. Um, but the potential implications are actually very profound and do ultimately, we believe, support everything that is moving us to a more regenerative model. And I think the other thing that it's um, important to bring in at, at this point is that the voices of the youth are really important in this because there is such a growing sense in the up upcoming generation that you know we have to do things differently and they're getting more and more vocal about this and and of course the the youth movements like Fridays for Future and also the, the sort of protest movements like XR have been absolutely instrumental in you know kind of ringing that fire alarm if you like um, and what that's enabled us to do is to you know, enter the conversation at the media and political level in a way that wasn't possible before that conversation was opened up. So these are all steps in this process of moving towards something, something new and something uh, more harmonious in relation to nature. And I'll put at this point, I'll, I'll highlight that we're actually um, providing a high-level briefing for youth activists on the 12th of September. So for those of you that might be wanting to find out more and dive in to this um, to this subject um, in the youth movement, then put, you know, mark in your diaries 12th of September and check out our, uh, our feeds for that information. That is excellent. Thank you for sharing that. So the Earth Protectors Trust Fund that you've set up has allowed people to become conscientious Earth Protectors. And that, I think that kind of leadership, that sort of cultural leadership that allows people to take, uh, 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 to invest their, 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 their persons, their efforts, and their hopes and dreams in creating a better world is obviously something that leads logically on to the high level broadcast that you're doing for Ecoside Youth. And from that, of course, potentially, the role you intend to play at COP in Sham El Sheikh in November. Could you talk in a bit more detail about those? When people join the campaign um, and put funds into it, they are actually um, putting their 
um, nailing their colours to the mast, if you like. Um, and we call our membership Earth Protectors because they're contributing to this Earth Protectors Trust Fund. And that fund is ring-fenced for the diplomatic and legal work to progress ecocide law, particularly in favour of climate-vulnerable states. And that, of course, is highly relevant um, in the context of the climate cops. Um, and we will have a strong presence at COP27, um, probably even uh, stand space within the blue zone so that there is the you know a real kind of uh, ability of people to come and interact with this initiative um, at the highest level. One of the preparatory meetings for that is happening um, at the end of August beginning of September in Africa in Gabon and we will also be present there um, with an event joint with the Pacific Island state of Vanuatu okay. which was the first country to call on the international stage for consideration of ecocide crime. That is excellent. I think that being able to contextualize this um, in, in that line that leads to COP uh, by being present at the African Climate Week uh, is, is so profoundly important where for the first time in the COP process we're obviously having two you know, Middle East and North Africa COPs side by side, not just, not, not just the upcoming COP27 but COP28 as well. Now given those two grand opportunities, talk to us in a bit more detail about your ambitions for how you accelerate uh, even further because obviously we start off with 22 we have this great opportunity with the European Crime Directive to add hypothetically a further 27 or 20 depending on the element 22 <laughs> and uh, and so with that in the in the in the bag if you like I think these two cops allow you to go even further do you want to talk about those what opportunities lie in those what strategies you might be employing it's really a question of having those at the highest level understand the links between destruction of nature and climate because you know ultimately we can reduce emissions as much as we like but if we don't stop destroying the living nature that is supporting us, that is creating the carbon sinks, and you know we are simply going to continue to exacerbate climate change. So it's making those links is, is really a key aspect of what we bring to the COP context. Um, and we know that there is interest in Africa already um, on this, you know, around this initiative. Uh, we had a representative at the environmental law talks at UNEP uh, in Nairobi just um, a month or two ago, and that there was a lot of regional interest then. So we're lo looking forward to some interesting connecting um, and to really, you know, bringing this, this issue of just putting that outer boundary to prevent destruction as a, one of the really key pieces that supports addressing climate. It's po possibly one of the most powerful climate solutions out there. Well, thank you for saying that. A, a lot of um, activists on, on the African continent have also talked about how important it is to set out um, low carbon development pathways in a way that provides opportunity for poverty alleviation, in a way that looks for co-benefits like um, uh, protecting human rights on a broad scale, but with specificity protecting access to education and health services for women and girls. Um, could you talk in a bit more detail about ways in which, even though you know the, 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 the Stop Ecocide Crime Alliance is about stopping bad things from happening, Talk about ways in which we can use this, if you like, as a way of pushing good things to happen. So pushing the regenerative end mm. of stop ecocide. Could you 
put words to that. I think the place to start here is to realise that the climate issue and climate justice is a human rights issue as well. Um, and that where the destruction of nature is taking place, inevitably what we are seeing, uh, you know, is on the ground suffering in many other areas that are linked, you know, and, and one could look at the Niger Delta as an example, you know, one could look at, you know, the questions around potential fracking in Africa, uh, one could look at the, um, the, the apparent sell-off of, of rainforest in key areas, these kinds of things. You know, all of these tie in with how is that going to affect the local population? Um, and how is that going to, how is that going to affect uh, the ways in which, you know, government interacts and companies interact with local populations? And it's interesting how, I mean, and, and, and this is, a, I mean, it's, it's a completely, um, sort of parallel thing if you like but also looking at this this sort of grassroots level of of understanding of what we're doing at the at the sort of high level in terms of an international crime is actually really important i mean just taking it even back home into into um you know western countries where effectively those who suffer the most from environmental harms tend to be the poorest you know and and, and you know communities of color for example you know it, it, these 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 imbalances are echoed actually you know around the world and between regions of the world and the decisions that we can that we're able to make as citizens depend entirely on the options that are offered to us at the highest level um, and if those options you know allow for the kinds of you know destruction and the dependence on oil and all of these things then you know the options that we're given are very limited and and you know i mean if even even just in my country if i go into a supermarket and everything's covered in plastic you know that isn't a consumer choice i didn't decide to do that that's actually a decision you know that's a regulatory issue that happens at the highest levels of government and, and industry and, and, and production and so on so that just that's just a simple example of how you know what we really need to be doing is addressing what you know at source what can then make you know have different effects in terms of the options that we're given as citizens um, and in you know developing countries and and um in in the global south as is often refer referred to you know those decisions that happen at government level and how those are you know how those kinds of contracts are made with big business and all of that sort of thing will be affected um in a positive way by having the right framework in place because a lot of those countries have so much opportunity to move towards renewables to move towards regenerative approaches and to look at i mean taking agriculture as, as an example you know to look at local ways that suit the local landscape and local approaches you know that are currently prevented by the fact that it's perfectly all right to go ahead with massive monocrop agriculture or industrial agriculture with extractive projects so putting those uh, you know that framework in place will have a direct and positive knock-on effect as to the kinds of projects and the kinds of um you know life decisions that are made available to the people in those countries 100 that was really beautifully put i think realizing that we in the west have system constrained choices that are enforced by our policies um and then extrapolating that to um less developed country less developed countries where institutions are sometimes weaker where um colonial histories constrain the choices even of contemporary citizens so we see that the constraints that we face here are amplified in far-off places by actions that are still decided 
largely mm. in the West. So, mm. so tackling in the way that the Stop Ecoside um, uh, Coalition does, tackling this foundational crime of destroying ecosystems, of reducing the availability of ecosystem services to everyone, is a great way of putting a floor mm. under, you know, the standards that we use to to create um, our political economy, to create our ways of life. And I really liked what you said about going to a supermarket and not having the choice as to how much plastic packaging you have. And this is, this is us um, in a developed democracy. Imagine what it's like living uh, in a part of the world uh, that has less developed institutions, where choice is even more constrained. I think in those situations, the ecocide law is even more essential, even more needed. And as you say, it, it gives us the chance to flip the conversation from this set of destructive development pathways to regenerative development pathways. And, it, sorry. Yeah, I think it also is, it's a great, as you say, I liked your your idea of a, a floor because there is a, there's a way that it is a, a leveler you know it's, it's it actually levels the playing field for those who are trying to do the right thing because currently you know they're at a disadvantage you know currently you actually have to be quite well off to do the right thing and that is not fair you know that is that that is not that's not um you know that's not sovereignty at any level if you like 100%. um and so yeah it, it's very important that you know it, it's not just about those who have their hearts in the right places and are moving in the right direction. It's also about those who, who need that tap on the shoulder in order to jump out of the, you know, the, the sort of established groove. Um, because sometimes we do need that as humans. You know, we, 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 we do find it difficult to break habits. Um, and sometimes it actually does require an external constraint in order to do that, in order to set those right questions in motion to move in a new direction. 100%. I think it's profoundly important to amplify the fact that this this consensus around ecocide being a crime that must be avoided uh must be uh prohibited and the letter of the law being enforced this consensus is something that leads on to something even greater we've hinted at it already but i think we should amplify it so the idea that when we go to this new place where ecocide stops is banned it's recognized as the evil that is, and firms look at more regenerative ways of engaging with all of their stakeholders, new things become possible, even normal. And so within that context, I wanted you to talk in a bit more detail about the virtual summit around states and uh, conversations that might happen in the finance community during New York Climate Week. Okay, so um, we've got a very specific remit um, within what we do to support climate vulnerable states in particular um, around this issue because they have a very strong incentive to move forward with this law um, and countries like Vanuatu are really starting to use all the tools in the box to move forward um, at the legal level, at the you know business level, at in, in all sorts of ways. Um, and so 
We are going to be having a presence at the Virtual Island Summit, run by Island Innovation, that will be happening at the end of September. Um, and again, supported by Vanuatu and with voices from islands such as Antigua and Barbuda um, and other island voices, um, both uh, legal and political and, and cultural, um, to talk about ecocide law. Uh, because in the context of those states, it is an option, it is a legal route where they have genuine power um, because the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is a one-state, one-vote forum. Um, but unlike the UN, it doesn't have a Security Council, it doesn't have a veto. Um, and so the smaller states can group together and actually create a real force to move forward with a law that can concretely change how the whole world approaches economic activity. Um, and so that's a real opportunity and that's one that we want to really make clear um, and you know um, help to discuss um, at that at that forum. Um, and I think that on the finance side it's also really important to acknowledge that this um, legal initiative is actually supported by important voices in the investment community, for example. Um, when we think of, um, there's a network called the International Corporate Governance Network, which is a, an investor-led network of big financial institutions, banks and accountants, and all these um, financial firms that manage over half the world's managed assets. Um, that group uh, submitted a statement to COP26 last year, which specifically re um, recommended governments to collaborate on criminalising ecocide. And of course, what that does um, for them is it creates a kind of stability um, in the long term, looking at investments, looking over to the next few years and thinking, you know, how do we know where we're, you know, what risks we're dealing with? You know, how do we know which horses to back? How do we know where to um, in, you know, invest in projects? And I think that that's a really important aspect um, to know that, you know, those who are at the, you know, the, the sort of top of the finance world are really beginning to take this seriously. For all those reasons, it means that the coming weeks are going to be crucial in this whole development of this movement. Thank you very much for that, Jojo. Now, the context and the timing of everything that's going on right now are really very prescient. So let's reach out to our viewers and talk in a bit more detail about ways in which they can lean on their partners, um, their business partners, their finance partners, so that they, they, they can build momentum in supporting Stop Ecoside International. Um, you mentioned earlier on that uh, lots of international uh, governments and firms were very keen to get a clear definition of ecocide that they could work with, so they knew the risks they were working with, so they could adapt their businesses to do better. Are there ways in which individuals can give them nudges, make them do more of this? Could you talk about that? Absolutely. And I think this, you know, this really brings in, you know, how people can get involved in this movement. And, you know, to start with the area that you're talking about, I mean, we've actually just recently created a wonderful digital toolkit that gives people, you know, all the kind of the graphics, the ways of expressing the, the sort of background information that they need to be able to bring this initiative around criminalizing ecocide to all of those that they deal with. And it includes things like, you know, little graphics that are supporting badges that, you know, can be put on websites saying you know we support stop ecocide and you know um so that 
all different kinds of organisations, without any great effort, can flag that they um, are willing and you know able effectively to get their heads around this change in the law and to support it and effectively say, you know, we're, we're ready for this. This is not bothering us. You know, we're we're going to go ahead um, and support this. So that's a very um, encouraging development, a very concrete thing that people can can do. Um, and at grassroots level, we've also got the amazing um, youth activists really bringing this into the climate march at New York Climate Week on the 23rd of September. And this climate march will be echoed around the world. Um, and Stop Ecoside is going to be uh, one of the key messaging aspects of that. So, you know, making that climate march, um, you know, in large part, a walk to stop ecocide. Um, and that is something that, you know, that, that, that young people, that all of us actually, can get involved in and can join in with. And, you know, if you have a following, if you are an influencer, and you can say, I'm joining that walk to stop ecocide, that can have, again, a really strong impact. So that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. I, th I think it's a, a really beautiful note um, to, to summarise where we're at which is that we started off in a place where we had made this colossal crime, this, this ability to destroy whole regions and ecosystems for profit. We made it invisible by not acknowledging it, by not enforcing even local laws about it. And we, we, we've, we've changed that because we're, we're defining it in, international, in, in an international level. We're calling in partners. We have momentum towards that. But on top of that, we now have a situation whereby we're, we're birthing this new regenerative vision that's youth-led that has, has pulled in supporters and made a case that so many others have been drawn to. And we've reached the point now where we have these monthly podcasts where we can update people, tell them what's going on, tell them how they can become involved, and I think spread the good news. Because there is quite a lot of it out there, isn't there? There really is. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, thank you. I'm really grateful. You've been listening to the Ecoside Report. You can find out more about all of the issues discussed in this episode via the links in the podcast description. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.